This is a text for Pastor John's sermon this morning. Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 19. Moses said to the Lord, See thou sayest to me, Bring up this people, but thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, show me now thy ways, that I may know thee and find favor in thy sight. Consider too that this nation is thy people. And God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to the Lord, If thy presence will not go with me, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not in thy going with us, so that we are distinct, I and thy people, from all the other people that are upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses pleads with God that God would show him his glory. And God answers, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, as we learned last week, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses asked to see his glory. God proclaims to him his name. And he isn't playing word games with Moses. Show me your glory. This is my name. God can talk like that because the manifestation of his name is the revelation of his glory. If you know the names of God, you know the glory of God. And his name in verse 19 is Yahweh. The same name that we saw in chapter 3 verse 14 of Exodus last week. But this time... It's explained with different words. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the name of Yahweh was explained with the words, I am who I am. And here it's explained with the words, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And notice how similar the structure of those two sentences is. Exodus 3.14 focuses on the existence of God. I am who I am. There is no influence coming from without me, shaping me into the way I am. He simply is who He is without any external powers determining His being. But Exodus 33:19 focuses on God's gracious action. He does what he does without any external influence determining 
his choices. And verse 19 says that is his glory, that is his name. So here's the doctrine that I would draw out of this passage for us to consider this morning. It is the glory of God to be gracious to whomever he pleases apart from any constraints originating outside his own will. It is the glory of God to be gracious to whomever he pleases apart from any constraints originating outside his own will. Or to put it differently, God's sovereign freedom is essential to his name. He is, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. God is utterly free with no constraints exerted upon him by his creatures. The inclinations of his will flow in the directions that he himself determines. And whatever influences come from outside God, appearing to change God, are influences that he himself has ordained. Exodus 33, 18-19 teaches that this self-determining freedom of God is his name. And his glory. If he were to surrender his freedom to man, he would cease to be God, at least the God of the Bible. Now, there are implications, very practical implications of this teaching. And there are four that at the end I'm going to unpack for you just a little bit. But before we do that, there are two other things. I want to see the context here so that we can see what practical implications this doctrine had for Moses. And then I want to show, the, show you the wider biblical foundation of this teaching. So first, let's look at the context. And to do that, we want to back up a little ways into chapter 32. You remember what happened there. Moses was too long on the mountain. Therefore, Aaron, under the influence of the people, built a golden calf. He set it up and they began to worship it. God approaches and in verse 9, of chapter 32, he says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. But Moses would not let him alone. In verses 11 through 13, he intercedes with a desperate prayer on behalf of the people of Israel. And he makes his case before God, not on the basis of Israel's worth, but on the basis of the worth of God's name. If you lay this people waste in the wilderness, your name will be drugged through the dirt in Egypt. They will laugh you to scorn. If you lay this people waste in the desert, your word to the patriarchs will be trampled in the dust. For the sake of your name and your glory, relent. And having made clear why he's relenting, God relents. And all he does is send the sons of Levi to kill 3,000 and send a plague, a light affliction for what they had done. So Moses spares the people and God spares the people. Now, Moses says that he wants God to go up with them. God says in verse uh, 34 of chapter 32, 
Now go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Well, Moses is not satisfied with a mere angel. Moses holds out for something better in verse 15 of chapter 33 now. Verse 15 of chapter 33, Moses says, If thy presence will not go with me, do not carry us up from here. Now that is an astonishing request. Because God had said back in chapter 33, verse 3, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you in the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So you see what Moses is asking? Come with us. God said, I'll wipe you out if I go with you. And Moses says, I'm not going up if you don't go with us. Now, you can see then how astonishing the request is. Look at the answer in verse 17 of chapter 33. God says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. In other words, yes, he will go. He will go with the stiff-necked people. He will let the grace that he's showing to Moses spill over onto this whole people and will go up. And not only go up, but he's willing to be identified with this people and be their God. It is an amazing act of grace and mercy. Now, the question rises in verse 18. Why Moses then went on to say, having received that word from God, show me your glory. Why does Moses ask to see the glory of God? I think the reason is this. Moses knew that he had asked something unthinkable. He knew that if it were dependent on anything in Mr. Moses or anything in the people... There's no way there could be any assurance that God would be gracious to the stiff-necked people. So he probes into God. Show me something about your character, your nature, your glory, your name that will enable me to have assurance you really can have enough mercy to go with the stiff-necked people up to the, the promised land. And God answers him in verse 19... I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, when Moses asks for a glimpse of what the possible glorious basis of this act of grace could be, he gets the answer, I'm the basis. I show mercy on whom I show mercy. I am gracious to whom I am gracious. That's the foundation. You can't go behind it. So, in the Old Testament context, the purpose of this doctrine, of this great teaching of God's sovereign freedom, is practical. It's to give the servant Moses courage that God can and will indeed be merciful to a stiff-necked, rebellious people. There are resources of grace that are found in God only. Now, there's a lesson to be learned here from this. The Bible never reveals for our understanding the great doctrines of God merely to be discussed intellectually. 
Never. It reveals them to our understanding that we might bow in reverence before the living God. Trust Him. Love Him. Obey Him with all our heart. The doctrine of the freedom of God is a practical doctrine. In fact, all the doctrines of God in the Bible have to do with everyday life. Theology is the most relevant and practical of all the human disciplines. And if that hasn't been your experience, I can think of two possible reasons. One, your theology is untrue. And secondly, you pursue it with irreverence. Oh, there's a lot of that. A lot of theological gamesmanship. Let's read this book and so we can talk about this with somebody. Let's see what they've read. Let's banter secondary literature. While awesome, infinite, eternal issues are at stake for the human heart. If you approach your doctrine with a sense of fear and trembling that things are at stake here that, of, that are of great practical import and eternal, immense importance, you will discover that theology is the most practical of all the disciplines. God is a great and practical God. And I want to unfold four of those practicalities for you, but first, one other thing. Let's spread the biblical foundation of this doctrine out. Let me state it again. It is the glory of God to show mercy or to be gracious on whom he will, apart from any constraints originating outside his will. That is his glory. That is his name. That's what it means to be God. When you apply that doctrine to the issue of personal salvation, it's called unconditional election. Election is the work of God by which he chooses whom he will save. And unconditional means that his choice, his election, is not based on anything in man, but solely on his sovereign electing will. Last week we asked this question, why is God the way he is? Tell us, God, why are you the way you are? And we heard him give us the answer, I am who I am. There is nothing to say behind me. Nobody and no thing is making me the way I am. Today we ask the question, God, why did you choose me? Why did you set your favor on John Piper one day to cause him to be born into a Christian family and to work efficaciously to take my heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh and give me faith? Why? And he answers, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. There are many passages in the New Testament that confirms the doctrine of unconditional election. I'll mention only five and mention them briefly. First, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. 
a personal word about Romans 9. Fifteen years ago, when I was a junior in seminary, this chapter came on me. I wrote it in one of my final exams, like a tiger, and consumed me. And I live in the belly of that tiger. It has captured me, and when I finished my studies, I was so bound by this chapter... I took seven years to write a book about 23 verses of it called The Justification of God to make sure I understood this chapter. And I wrote in the preface of this book, if I can find it, The God of Romans 9 took me captive while I was yet in seminary. No other picture of God ever commended itself to me as more true to what the Creator must be. If there is a God, he must be the God of Romans 9. After seven years of effort to understand this chapter, it still seems to me that its essence is this. God's righteousness consists in his being an all-glorious God and refusing to be anything less than all-glorious. It has been the delight of my life in these years to behold this God and to ponder his awesome sovereignty. If this book had never been published it would still be a treasure to me. Nobody asked me to write it. Few people knew it was emerging. The grand subject drew me on, and to him I owe all the willing and the running. Paul says in verse 14 of Romans 9, What shall I say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, and then he quotes our text, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on man's will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul draws out of Exodus 33:19 the very doctrine that we do. Namely, that the basis of God's electing mercy in your life is nothing in you, no act of will, no running. It is God's sovereign electing grace, setting his favor upon you and converting you to himself. Second, Acts chapter 13 verse 48. Luke records for us here a sermon preached at Antioch of Pisidia by the Apostle Paul. And just as important as the sermon is his interpretation as an inspired spokesman for the living God, why some believed. Why did any believe when this sermon was preached? And he tells us in verse 48 at the end, Acts 13. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It is not your belief that gets God to ordain you to eternal life. It is God's sovereign and gracious choice to ordain you to eternal life that enables you to believe. Faith is a gift of God's grace and God's grace is given sovereignly and freely. I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. Third, 
John chapter 10, verse 26. It's a text very similar to the one in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. In Acts 13, 48, we're told, Why do some believe? And in John chapter 10, verse 26, we're told why some do not believe. John 10, 26. This is Jesus talking. And he says to the Jews who do not believe, You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. We turn it right on its head in American evangelicalism. It does not say, You are not my sheep because you do not believe. It says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You do not become a sheep by believing. You are enabled to believe because he has sovereignly made you a sheep by grace, apart from any act of will or running in you. Fourth, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. One of the most important and widely read texts on election that is in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he should be that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace. God acts to preserve His freedom because He aims, when all is said and done, to have all the glory for His sovereign, glorious grace. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Know how we could multiply text to show that that's God's aim. One final text that may answer another question. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. The question rises, well, if it is the essence of God, if it is His glory and His name that He has mercy on whom He wills apart from my willing and running, then how should I think of my faith, my obedience, and my acts of will? For all of us know that we do acts of will and must. First, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10 answers that question so helpfully. Therefore, brethren, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election. For if you do this, you will never fall. In other words, our zeal of faith and obedience does not make us elect. It confirms our election. Brothers and sisters, he says, believe, obey, and thus confirm that God has worked sovereignly in your life to bring you to himself and make you his child. God is not moved to choose you because of your faith. You have faith because he has chosen you. And so the doctrine of unconditional election is not the product of an isolated text. We could go on all afternoon assembling texts that imply the freedom of God. Let me close with four personal and 
practical applications. And I've tried to find four words that begin with H to help you remember them. The doctrine of unconditional election means humility for the best of saints, hope for the worst of sinners, help for the cause of missions, and homage to the name of God. So just briefly, each one. Humility for the best of saints. There is no doctrine, brothers and sisters, which will humble you to the dust like this doctrine. Oh, how we need to meditate on the truth that whatever virtue, whatever faith, whatever willing, whatever running we can produce, it is of God's grace and not of ourselves. Oh, how it will humble us and keep us meek and lowly and tender-hearted and guard us from flaring up in anger against God or against each other. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Do you believe that? Dead? Unable to lift the little finger of your will to please God. Romans 8, 8. And God, in His absolutely free and sovereign grace, came to you, dead, and made you alive so that you could believe. Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord and humble himself before the Almighty. Second, the doctrine of unconditional election means hope for the worst of sinners. And this is why it is a sweet and precious doctrine. This is what it meant to Moses. Moses said, how can I know that you will go with me? With this stiff-necked people. And God answers, their stiff-neckedness has nothing to do with my capacity to be gracious. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Do you see the hope that gives us in our gospel offering? When people come into my office and they say, I am so rotten. If you knew my past, there would be no hope. I can't begin to make it with God, let alone Him with me. Do you see what I have to offer? I say to them, wait a minute. God will be gracious to whom He will be gracious. And do not presume to think that any rottenness or any hardness from your background can be an insurmountable obstacle to the Almighty in His sovereign freedom. If we didn't have the sovereignty of God, we'd have no gospel. All we could do is barter with people. But we've got a gospel. There is nothing in your background that can hinder the grace of God in your life. If there's anybody here this morning who has not been born again by being brought to faith in the living Christ, do not sink into hopelessness thinking that your past somehow is a mountain over which the sovereign, free grace of God cannot climb. 
Humble yourself before Him. Call upon the name of the Lord. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, says the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is speaking right now in this message. He is at work sovereignly by His precious Word to awaken you. Follow it through. Third, help for the cause of missions. If there is hope for the worst of sinners, is there not help for the cause of missions? You know the most discouraging discouraging thing for missionaries? We're going to see it in this film tonight. Hard people. Hard societies. Fruitlessness in the work. David Brainerd. The missionary to the Indians in New England in the mid-1700s loved this doctrine and died 29 years old in Jonathan Edwards' house of tuberculosis, spent himself for the Indians for two years. He wrote in his journal again and again about how this doctrine strengthened him for the work. He said, June 25, 1744, I was enabled to cry... Notice his grammar. I was enabled to cry to God for my poor Indians today. And though the work of their conversion appeared impossible with man, yet with God I saw all things were possible and my faith was much strengthened. Missionaries do not need to despair. Where there is hardness and impossibility, God's sovereign grace is the strength to give the help that they need. It is not their willing or running. It is not the people's hardness that counts ultimately. It is God who sets His favor on whom He wills. Obedience to the missionary. Finally, unconditional election means homage to the name of God. And His name is, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. His awesome freedom and His glory If we knew God at Bethlehem, if we knew God, we'd be a different people. We don't know God well. If we knew God, how broken and contrite and humble we would be. How we would lower ourselves before Him. How slow we would be to fault Him. How slow we would approach one another with bitterness and rage and anger. We would shrink from every attitude of belittling to God. And we would rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy because He set His favor on us. And now to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor and sovereign freedom forever and ever. And all the children of God said, Amen.